This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We honour their histories, cultures and traditions of storytelling. Hello and welcome to Plated Three Food Memories. I am your host, Savas Savas. For 25 years, my catering company, Plated, has contributed food experiences to some of Australia's premier events and intimate gatherings. During this time, I've observed the relationships people have with food and devoured thousands of conversations around it. I believe that every memory can be pinned to a food experience and every food experience can trigger a memory. Food memories shape who we are and remind us where we have come from. One of my early food memories is eating a banana paddle pop on the miniature train at Bronte Beach in Sydney. Join me as we move the fork around my guest three food memories to reveal what their memories tell us about them and motivates them to make our world a better place. Each guest will share a social cause close to their heart at the end of the episode. My guest today has lived more lives than a cat, a bee's dick younger than the Queen of Australia. Joy Jobbins was born and grew up in Bondi, where she says she lived an idyllic life. Joy's father, one of the pioneers of the Australian film industry, was an accredited Second World War correspondent. He involved Joy in the production of war films for the Australian Department of Information, preparing her for a career in film making and advertising. In 1959, Joy played an important role in the inaugural Australian Fashion Awards. Fate would further smile upon her when she would go into heading up advertising for the Australian Wool Board, laying the foundations for decades of successful international trade. These days, Joy drives herself to work four days a week, works gentlemen the hours at the Victoria Barracks. She's the glue that keeps the place together. Joy is two-thirds into a trilogy of her life story and plans to publish the final instalment on her 100th birthday. And while she has mileage left in her yet, Joy's life is an invaluable aide-memoir that much glory is to be had before we reach the finish line. Joy, welcome pl- to Plated Three Food Memories. Good heavens. Oh, Sarah, that's... <laughs> That's an unbelievable uh, accolade. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And, and, and well-deserved, Joy. Oh, come on. Joy, may I ask you an indelicate question? How old are you? Uh, well, that's not indelicate. Once you get to this age, which is 94, you, you, you sprouted from the treetops because uh, you thank whoever you believe in, like, uh, in my case, Gus, the great universal spirit. God, the great uh, omnipotent deity, uh, I've just been blessed. I've always said yes to everything and I've tried to learn from the experiences because quite often I should have said no Uh, and therefore I've been blessed, A, with the ability to say yes, I'll do whatever's required and B, um, yes, we'll face the consequences but also I was blessed with a good work ethic. 
So let's hop into your first food memory. It was um, uh, wartime food coupons. It was uh, the Great Depression when I really started uh, this marvellous experience. And there um, in Australia, and certainly in Sydney, Australia, Bondi, um, no, uh, we never starved. But fortunately, um, my father was working because he just joined the newly formed Cinesound um, uh, film company. And in such situation, he, um, he, he was able to provide for the family. But food was never uh, on, the, on the major list. We had the bare essentials, never was hungry, never starved. But during those years, I can see people in Bondi sitting under a lamppost on their furniture and saying to my father, why are those people out on the street? And he said, well, they couldn't pay their rent, darling, and, and uh, they can't afford to, li to live here. So, yes, my first experience of food was there wasn't a great deal of it, but there was enough of basics like eggs and milk, perhaps, and and meat if you were jolly lucky, uh, bread and and something. You know, early memories uh, were pretty pretty plebeian, but nevertheless we survived and we survived very well. In your book, you say that your mother wasn't a great cook. Can well, you tell us about that? My mother was orphaned during the uh, the second the first World War, and she was brought up by an uncle, and she was the poor, she was the Cinderella of a household of two other. Uh, daughters who um, were prettier than she, etc., etc., and she she did the scullery work up until the time that she met my father and in her late mid mid to late teens, and therefore she never learned to cook, and in consequence she was never able to pass on food or cooking to me, because when I was born, then it's the Great Depression, and so it went so. Food in, in, in our, our world was pretty unimportant. As a child living and going to the Bondi State School and swimming every afternoon from, from uh, North Bondi to the pool at uh, South Bondi and then clambering round the cliffs face. Or, no, I had energy, I was healthy. I No, there was never any problem in terms of I think what we ate was very good for us. And Joy, what what did the food shops look like in Bondi at the time, the stores? Would you believe the Sergeant's Pie Factory was up there on the corner of Palmer and Burton Street, round the corner from where I live now. But now longer, it's no longer Sergeant's Pies, it's now longer, it's now, oh, a block of, you know, modern units, oh dear God. Where has the time gone? Yes. Joy, do you places. remember the flavours of these Sergeant's Pies? Oh, the pastry was thin-ish, but um, uh, oh, it, it sort of crunched in the teeth and then when you got into it, the pies dribbled with their gravy down you into your school uniform. Oh, oh, and they were hot, always served hot too. Oh, oh, oh dear. And these days we have pies with tomato sauce. Is that what you did back then? I... I have to confess, no, I think in my in my understanding of loving pies to this day, no, I, I can't see when tomato sauce came on the scene for my memory, but um, it wasn't quite there in the 30s. No, mm, no, mm, mm, mm. 
About 20 or 30 years ago, Joy, you wrote an article on potato chips. Tell us about the article. Well, it was called The Great Chips I Have Known, and they were known because over the years, starting, I suppose, in those Depression years and going right through the war when there was uh, food shortages and then the glorious years of the 50s and 60s when everything was was new again, chips were the, the sort of basic foundation. And I remember during the war... Uh, that's the Second World War, not the, not the Boer <laughs> War. During the Second World War, uh, my my mother, who her religious beliefs were not particularly profound, but she always believed that you had to have fish on a Friday, and therefore the local fish shop had fish and chips. So every Friday during the whole period of the um, Second World War. Um, Every Friday, as I recall, was fish and chip night. And from then onwards, my my love of chips uh, was in, installed into my DNA. And uh, all the way through, I, wherever I've been, I've never cooked them myself very satisfactorily because I've never learned how to do. But everywhere I've gone, I've found the local fish and chip shop so that I can uh, make an assessment. And this article I wrote was a nostalgic one about the lovely memories that the ship, the chips from those those places um, brought uh, most fond and happy memories, even though quite often they were during very black times when there was, you know, bombs even flying around us, you know, when the Japanese came and, and we had to hide under the kitchen table because they were shelving us off Kuji. Oh! Dear, oh dear. Joy, what is it about the potato, the potato chip that gives you comfort and solace, security? Oh, it was just it and the salt that went with it. You have to have it with salt. Without salt, forget it. Um, no, it was the crunch of the of the uh, the batter in which it had been, you know, nicely fried, and then the lovely soft creaminess of the potato. Yes. Um, mm, Yes, I think in the day I was quite an expert as to what type of potato made a better tasting chip. And what was the potato? That oh God, I can't the day. remember now. I think it was the one that you had to peel, <laughs> <laughs> not the the lazy bone way where you just boiled it up and you know. <laughs> no. Let's talk a little bit about um, when the Japanese came to bomb. Mm. You're a young girl with your mm. family, your mother mm. and your father, mm. and you're under the tables. What are you thinking? Well, at that point, my father, because of a health condition, but also he was reporting for Sinisound, uh, he was also in um, uh, roof spotting for aeroplanes. So he wasn't always, he was never home, really. Uh, my mother was uh, an at-home mother, and... Um, in this day, we already we had had to uh, put you know paper on the walls uh, on the windows to stop because the Japanese we didn't have television we didn't have news in the way that we have today even radio news was certainly newspapers were, were very light on so we it was mainly through radio we knew what was what was happening in the world around us uh, and. Um, Therefore, we heard, we only heard that Japanese submarines. I, I, I have to put that in past memory because, at the time, all I know is we could hear the bombardment of the of 
big loud gunfire outside uh, over Clibelli and Coogee where near where we lived. And it was only later, but we, we knew because the radio had said you must hide under door door, sh- uh, door uh, covers or under uh, secure ceilings. Uh, and that's why we were under the staircase uh, and the table uh, to protect ourselves. And we heard the sirens. Yes, I remember now we heard sirens. And then we heard the, the all clear sirens. So... Uh, it wasn't until much later that we learnt that Japanese submarines had come into Sydney Harbour, had been shelling, um, uh, even a flat in Double Bay got hit and damaged, no one was killed, uh, and they had bombarded off the coast. But also those same uh, submarines had um, they'd sunk the Cuttable, uh, a little uh, ferry boat yacht uh, there at... at um, in in the harbour, had missed hitting the big American uh, aircraft carrier on the other side of the bay. Uh, And strangely enough, my husband, not then, I didn't know he existed, but he was on board one of the rescue ships that came when the Cuttable was sunk and helped do the rescuer out of there in Sydney Harbour at the very time that I'm under the uh, under the table under the stairs but uh, they're just histories of the time and they are relative to having fish and chips during the war and <laughs> well, why, all food why I still love chips yes <laughs> well all food memories take us on that journey yes. to those little histories yes. joy during the pandemic my little boys little six and a half year old sons when we're having dinner I hear them talking about conversations they've had with their friends at school about the pandemic and about the COVID. What was the conversation like with your little friends at school during the war? Do you remember? Oh, good heavens. <laughs> By the time I, I'm up to remembering what was going on, I was in high school during the war and uh, <laughs> I I see we had to do air raid air raid uh, practice and my school was uh, there next to the um, the, the, the museum uh, it was called the uh, East Sydney Girls Junior High School uh, next to the museum on one hand and the uh, grammar school boys school was behind us and opposite us where St Mary's Cathedral was in the dis- distance was a little park and in the park were trenches and every day we had to do air raid practice uh, out of the school. How old were you? Oh, from from twelve onwards. So I was never good at school because it was wartime. The windows were covered in in uh, paper to stop them blowing if there was a blast. And my math teacher, who was a very young and very pretty, beautiful girl, was standing in front of the classroom, uh, and I noticed because I was looking at her. And it was at the time she was wearing high heel shoes that were backless with little bows on the back. And I'm so busy looking at the girl in the shoes that I couldn't see why she'd stopped, why she'd dropped the chalk. Because outside the window, the door, a soldier came by wearing a soldier's uniform with a hat. An Australian soldier? An Australian soldier. She dropped the chalk. She rushed out the door into his arms, and we never saw her again. So <laughs> we all said, oh, wasn't that exciting? Ooh, 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 ooh. So we were talking about such things. We weren't really talking about, you know, the drama of what was happening. Here was romance in front of our very eyes. So this was um, 
That's a memory that comes from just talking school and... What was the question? Uh, it, it doesn't matter. We've gone to a really beautiful place from that from the yes. chip. Yes. The chip has brought us to that lovely relationship. Yes. Joy, let's move on to your second food memory. Leaping way ahead into now my mature years, uh, like twenty, my twenties, <laughs> um, I uh, I found myself by absolute fabulous fate and circumstance, uh, joining an advertising agency that was handed on a silver salver the most extraordinary fashion account in the, the world, uh, which was for the wool industry. Had you worked in fashion before? Uh, I'd worked in advertising before and I'd worked in fashion before, fashion advertising before and fashion retail advertising before. I've been involved in the fashion business. But at this particular moment in time, I had recently, due to good fortune, joined an advertising agency that was just handed the, 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 um, the Australian Wool Board account. And it was at a time when the wool industry was riding Australia's prosperity was drive, riding on the sheep, still riding on the sheep's back, but the introduction of synthetic fibres had created havoc in the traditional industries, mainly because the Second World War had used up all of the natural wools, the cottons and the silks, for uniforms, for parachutes, for whatever, and the, the synthetic industry filled the gap. But not only did it fill the gap, it then began to take over to the detriment of the traditional uh, farmers and the farmers industry. Therefore, the wool industry had uh, had got together and decided that they were fighting back and they needed campaigns to promote and remind people of the wonderful world of wool and the wonderful properties of wool. And I was handed on a silver salver, the wool board account, which meant that it set my whole world into a different direction whereby I I had to negotiate with farmers on one hand, I had to negotiate with retailers and manufacturers and mills internationally. So as a woman during the time. Yep. yep. As a woman. Yep. And you had um Oh, unusual. A family and five kids and a husband and and a household to run. Oh, yes. No, no. How did you do all that? With the... Oh, by never saying no. Okay. <laughs> I'm thankful for the no-nos. <laughs> Not for saying no. Uh, oh, with great difficulty and a lot of help. I mean, really and truly. But in the, in the day, we're talking now the early 50s, and uh, everything was recovering from from the devastations of the war, and uh, uh, it was all hands to the plough, and there was a great deal of loyalty to supporting the Australian wool industry. So everyone was proud to be part of of trying to get you know the industry back on its on its feet again. So it was made easy uh, when you say, "How did you handle family and children?" But, oh, no, no, it was not easy. And any woman today 
she would find the same situation to juggle uh, school fees, to juggle uh, cut lunches, to, to cut her oh, breakfast, oh, homework, uh, uh, uh. And that this was all before television had actually come to be a babysitter, etc., etc. And Joy, during this time working for the Australian Wool Board, you met a number of interesting people, oh. big interna- names, international um, recognisable people. Can you tell us about the time that you met Helmut Newton? Uh, well, Helmut Newton uh, became uh, a, an internationally famous photographer, uh, working, you know, at the, the highest level and ultimately working out of Paris. But when I met him, he'd uh, I was working in the advertising department of Maya uh, looking after the fashion side of their advertising. Oh, Ken Meyer was my boss. We won't go there. Uh, and uh, Helmut, I, I was down from Sydney and, and didn't know anybody, and the production manager said, oh, if you want a photographer to do the hats, uh, there's a new chap up the road uh, called Helmut Newton, uh, uh, and he's been doing some stuff for us. Uh, he might be able to help. And it turned out that Helmut, at that point, had been one of the De Niro boys who'd, who'd escaped Hitler's um, terrible uh, war on, on, on the Jews. And being Jewish, uh, he had been exported uh, out, of, uh, out of Germany on this ship De Niro with a number of other people who were mistaken for, um, a, for German um, prisoners and were intercepted and brought to Australia. And they were put into camp in, oh, it's out out of Albury there. I forget the name of the camp now. I should remember it because I went there with him. Never mind. Uh, he, he was, uh, he just got out of the, was the, the war was over. He was in in the, in his little office in, in uh, Lonsdale Street. And I go up to his little office in Lonsdale Street. I remember it well because, uh, it was a very hot Melbourne day and there was Melthoid on, he was on the roof for, for the lighting for his photography and the Melthoid on the roof was melting and my, my feet were sticking to the floor and I get in and I say, Mr Newton, uh, I have these hats to photograph uh, and from then on became a most fabulous relationship because a, he took the pictures. B, I got the wallboard account. C, he did all the pictures, the photographs at the beginning. He introduced me or Maggie to us. So we Maggie gave Tabra. Ma- Maggie Tabra. We gave Maggie the first job, and we did, and we did our first big major wallboard thing down at the Florentino in Melbourne. So there we began to use all of the great restaurants for our backgrounds and history and tell us about some of those restaurants in melbourne during uh, that time because this was the era of the the long lunch this is where a lot of business was done oh oh now you're you're really bringing back a memory yes the two-hour luncheon two two martinis before lunch uh, a shared bottle of wine uh, a couple of any old brandies and then back to the office and uh, Try and conduct some more meetings, and then five o'clock open the bar, uh, and uh, and maybe at eight o'clock go for a big fashion gala where you have to greet the governor. Oh, oh yes, it sounds yes. a little bit like that Mad Men series. That oh, that sweetheart, of- we wrote the book. <laughs> we wrote the book, and therefore 
every major restaurant in the world, give or take, which part of the world were open to such behaviour, uh, I had the, the great joy and pleasure of enjoying. But the Florentino down in Melbourne was our sort of headquarters at that time. And it was run by the Masoni uh, family. And it was done in the great Italian tradition. And it was, it was, it was just, it was calm, it was quiet, it was elegant. Uh, and I, coming from the backwoods uh, of Eltham, where we lived then, which was a little, little semi-rural area of Victoria, uh, and finding myself there in the first instance, um, uh, I can't tell you the impression that that Florentino made. So much so that many years later, I introduced Leo Schofield, who was then considered the Australia's stomach because he had his newspaper column writing about food. And uh, at that point, um, Leo had become our, our creative uh, director in the ad one of the, uh, the advertising agency. And I'd said to Leo, oh, look, you, you must write about the Florentino. So Leo, you know, let us say, oh, dear, where, where were we, Helmut? Joy? Can you tell us about your father working in the film business? I think my father taught me that because even during during my early, before I got to be early teens, uh, he introduced me to the film business. I'd stand in and have to go in front of a camera and say, for some film for the British Corporation, uh, Tavarish, in a, in a Russian voice, or I'd have to help the makeup lady, which is where I, I was taught as a child, and he made sure that I learned to shorthand and type. So while I'm waiting for scripts to be, uh, for filming to be done with Chips Rafferty and all sorts of people, I'm typing out Gone with the Wind, which was a book at that time before they even made it into a film. And I learned to type, typing out Gone with the Wind. Da-dee-da. Why am I? Oh, yes. No, no. I've always accepted whatever has been offered to me. If I was offered... Uh, to make up Laurence Olivier, which I was, or using Goosens, which I was, because they were all there in Sydney for bond raising for the war, war effort. And he was there with Sydney Sound now filming stuff for, you know, for, for money raising. Uh, and I'd be taken into the Sydney Town Hall with a makeup bag, having to make up these people. And in consequence... Uh, this would explain why your makeup is just immaculate. <laughs> Well, no, you can thank Elizabeth Arden for that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but however, all of these digressions bring me back to uh, how do I, you know, was I smart-ass? No, oh, and I wasn't suggesting that you were smart-ass. No, no, I know you weren't, but all I can say is, no, I was extremely naive and just accepted everything with a yes. Tell us about some of your travels abroad with work. In the course of never saying no, um, and part of my wool board responsibilities, which also involved the International Wool Secretariat, I was on my way on one occasion to um, to New York. But because we'd been dealing with the architect of the El Camino uh, Real in Mexico City, I stopped off on Mexico in Mexico City to see the. Uh, the opening of the this magnificent new hotel, which um, uh, which involved being they they invited me to the 
pre-opening night. And uh, in consequence, I arrive in, in a chauffeured car to a beautiful, uh, a beautiful uh, establishment, which is polishing itself up, ready for the formal proper opening the next day. Uh, but a whole group of international high-flying, jet-setting corporate members like the head of Ford Motor Company, etc., etc., uh, had all been included uh, to come to this unofficial opening and therefore it was it was rather special but I was only there because we'd, we'd been involved with the uh, ensuring that wool upholstery in the carpets and the, the furnishings and all of that had been incorporated into the total design so I'm just there like Lady Muck but at the same time there I am treated respectfully and I arrive and as I explained, first of all, there was a big fountain. Instead of a traditional fountain, there was a they they'd created a rolling wave that was meant to roll uh, at at the at the front door, uh, but it was as I learned a work in progress. And as I arrived and got out of the car, the ray the wave rolled and sprayed all over me. So a I was soaked before I got in, but I did learn subsequently that the. The, the poor artisans who'd been working on the fountain and hadn't finished it, one of them had got drunk on tequila and had fallen in and drowned. So they were trying to cover up <laughs> that there'd been a small mishap. <laughs> anyway, we arrive, I arrive, and I'm booked in, and it's grand, absolutely grand. Chandeliers and a huge, vast foyer uh, looking out onto all sorts of very modern architectural colours and things. Very beautiful. And in it was a, a string quartet, very gently, very gently playing lovely little pieces of bark, for goodness sake, you know. But there I was. So they said, um, we'll take you up to the reception room. So I get up to the reception room where already a whole group of people were standing around, all very beautifully dressed, um, uh, and all greeting each other uh, and bravo and lots of kisses. And I said, uh, they didn't know who I was because these were all these corporates who had flown in for this opening and to get their picture taken. And they were flying out straight after the drinkies uh, onto Hawaii where they're going to have their celebrations in their private constellation and so I stand in the receiving line and shake hands and and look around and think oh this is really very very nice uh, and then suddenly it's over and they leave and I'm left standing there uh, and and uh, thinking what now and so then the manager uh, comes and says oh now Mrs Jobbins uh, can I take you into the dining room Okay, so in I go, and it's in its magnificent splendor. Uh, it's as good as any in the world that I have had the privilege of sitting in. But I sat there alone in this vast area with every waiter standing at workstation, with the head of the maitre d' standing there in his uniform and thing, and a mariachi band playing there before me. And they played all night. They served for food you. and all night. 
and they poured me out of there and into my suite, uh, and I remember it as a magnificent, yes. Any memory of what you ate? Of course not. I know I drank a lot of margaritas. I drank a oh, lot of margaritas. Just for the record, everybody, Joy makes a mean margarita. I think she forgets to put lime juice in it. It's no, just oh, no, no, no. It's a vital part of that. Gives you that looks after your scurvy. How about another travel story? Um, I was publishing the very first Australian travel magazine called Australia for Players and Stayers. And it uh, it was after my war board years. But uh, I found myself in Los Angeles having tried to flog the magazine um, to the, um, uh, the travel agents and tour wholesalers in that country. And because the dollar had been changed and it was more expensive for Americans to come to Australia than Australians to go to America, I wasn't getting anywhere at all with selling the magazine in order to get it published and off the ground. However, I'm staying at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel and I knew that Bernie Laser, who was an old friend of mine and the uh, owner and publisher of Australian Vogue and with whom I'd had many, many dealings in my Woolboard years, was also staying in the hotel. So thinking I'd, I'd see if he was in because I was running on financial empty as well as every other empty, I'd give him a ring and see what he was up to. So I phoned the downstairs and they put me straight through to Bernie in his suite. And I said, oh, Bernie, it's Joy. Uh, how marvellous that we, we are here in Los Angeles together. You selling Vogue. <laughs> I'll bet you've sold a million. Oh, I'm doing extremely well, said Bernie. And I said, well, what, 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 what to do? And he said, look, I'm on the phone. Come up and have a drink and I'll take you to dinner, as he often did in other times. So I whip upstairs in the elevator to his lavish apartment and there he's on the phone. And I'm really hungry for everything. And when he said, help yourself to the bar, uh, there was this big bowl of bananas. And so I ate four of them before he got off the phone. <laughs> and so while, <laughs> while I, I've eaten Bernie's bananas, he then said to me, oh, I'll um, look, uh, look, come and have a drink. And But sadly... Uh, I've got to um, I've got to go and see some relatives. So, uh, can I um, look? I'll order you the dinner that we might have had here in the hotel, and uh, and I'll make it extra special so that uh, you know if you, if you're tired and you, and I said yeah, well I'm leaving for tomorrow. So he did exactly that, and I go down and I pour a nice long hot bath. Uh, the waiters bring in a jug of mar uh, martini, which was our drink at that time, and. And in the fullness of time, a lovely, beautiful grilled, what was it? Oh, yes, a little eye of fillet steak and a beautiful little French salad, which is what he knew that I liked, and a bottle of California red. And uh, so I ate that, drank and, and went to bed, piece of the just, and realising that I just had enough money left over to get a taxi to the airport um, the next the next day in the morning to leave, to return to Australia. Joy, your third food memory is your first anniversary gift from your husband. 
Yes. Well, um, my husband was a very um, sophisticated uh, person by comparison with me in that... Uh, uh, Where did you meet? Oh, let's not go there. Let's go to the first... <laughs> the memory. Memory. The gift. Uh, because of my upbringing, uh, I... His first anniversary gift to me, instead of um, the Country Women's Association cookbook, because I couldn't even boil an egg, was the La Russe Gastronomique. When you took the paper off the gift, what were you thinking? Uh, I Well, I was sufficiently young and stupid not to be thinking anything, but <laughs> when I looked at it, I thought, no, this isn't isn't an insult. This is this is his witty way, of of being, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, and in consequence, from a man who had to introduce me to alcohol when we first met. I mean, I had never drunken anything more than lemonade, um, and he took me to oh a very fancy restaurant in Sydney. Uh, very, very famous, uh, and it was it was where advertising and work people went, and he had an expense account in this place. Where was he working at the time? Oh, well, it was just after the war, and it, he was working with a big American company uh, that had just set up big manufacturing in the country. And were there a it, lot of American companies coming into Australia oh, after the World War, Second World War? Yes. Well, this one, the only one I know is the one that he was involved with, which was called California Productions. And in, in which case, uh, he'd been over to America, he'd done ABC learning stuff for how the company worked, brought it all back and they set up manufacturing in Bathurst, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing is, he was on a huge expense account and he was used to whining and dining his clients and everybody else um, at this, oh, I can't. What a pity I can't remember the name. It wasn't Princess because that was another time. It wasn't it wasn't Romano's, that was another time. It was oh anyway, the thing is, we go to this restaurant and I have never had anything long top. So he finally he ordered um a sherry. No and finally I settled for um a shandy. And he uh, uh, he said, well, yes, to, to be polite to the waiter, I'll have a beer. So then the next thing is he, he, I didn't know how to order in the restaurant. I, it was, wasn't, wasn't my experience at all. And the waiter was in full gear, you know, with white tie and tails and very proper. And so uh, he ordered, he said, oh, I'll order for you. And he ordered oysters. And I looked at them and I thought, oh, my God, what are they? <laughs> and uh, and finally, he, he then said, could we have the Mornade? And I thought, so at least when they came Mornade and were disguised, and therefore when I got them down, uh, or one or two, I thought, mm, they're not so bad. But of course, a hundred years later, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, 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 I 
would die for an oyster. <laughs> but so my early beginnings with 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 um, cooking and food started with La Rousse de uh, Gastronomique. <laughs> Family life for you was a blended household of five children. Tell us about them. Um, well, they're all now adult, of course, and some have produced grandchildren and even great-grandchildren. And all of them have, have, have gone on to do productive, really constructive and, yeah, and creative work uh, in different uh, categories. But uh, I think the creative gene has followed through in, uh, in all of them, really. And uh, I can only say that when the book is closed, probably the best thing we've ever done is be, produce a group of beautifully hard-working, intelligent, creative, loving, caring human beings. Now, Joy, I, want to, I do want to ask you something, and please feel free not to answer if you feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I'm coming to you with you to this as a, as a parent myself. Mm-hmm. Natural order suggests that our children do not predecease us. Two of your children have died. Mm-hmm. Where does this loss sit with you? Well, fortunately, I, and it comes from my father's philosophy, I'm blessed with the, the belief, which is very comforting, that the body is, um, there it is, a functioning fine machine that uh, is operated by the, bl- the heart-pumping blood to the brain, the brain uh, causing the body to function in every which way, and the mind is a compartment of the body. But the soul is a separate entity that when the time comes to go, uh, all of the experiences that we've had go out into space in a nebulous way, waiting to be reborn or recycled into another body that is waiting to receive it. And with it comes the experience that you've garnered, and it does for me explain why, just to use the simple example, a genius like Mozart could at the age of three create fantastic music start to follow in that direction with no other skills at all and it can only be from something former learnt and therefore I believe that the soul keeps recycling until it's reached perfection and when it does we go up there with whoever's Gus or or God (laughs) Gus or God (laughs) and in consequence the fact that the kids have gone uh, they've done great stuff whilst they were here and if Gus or God said, okay, time up, you've done well, you've learned a lot, time to move on. And that's why we believe in old spirits. You feel that you've met somebody and you think, oh, I've met you before, or you're an old spirit. Now, that could be woo-woo, you know, spirits nonsense, but I, I'm comforted by the thought that the, the soul, we may not meet the same person again. It's just the experiences, and that's why I say, always say yes. Learn from your experiences, because it's going to put you in kids good, 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 good stead for the next time around. Um, and Is that that's a piece why, of advice that you... Yeah, 
Can you give us all? Say yes. Oh, yes. Please say yes. It's the only one. (laughs) (laughs) Just say yes. I'd like to now, Joy, reflect on your social cause. Um, It's the Defence Community Dogs Program. Can you tell us about that? Uh, well, where I where I work with uh, volunteers in the uh, in Victoria Barracks, we we sponsor um, community uh, community dogs, which we do through the Defence Bank, uh, and we we pay to have these dogs trained. And these are pound dogs. They're pound dogs. In our instance, who go to the Bathurst jail, and they are trained by the prisoners inside the jail as a therapy for them, uh, by a professional dog trainer, and when they're ready, they are then offered, and we and others, but the Royal We is our organisation. We then pay, and then we are told which returned veteran who is suffering from P, P, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, receives the dogs, uh, and uh, then we get reports back on how both the dog and the, uh, the new owner uh, are carrying on. And the therapy is so impressive. But the point is, it's a, one of those win-wins for the prisoners in the jail, the dog, it's more than win. It's three wins. The dog is released win, out win, of the win. pound. It goes to the jail. The The prisoner learns something worthwhile, and his worthwhile is then passed on to a needy person from whom it receives huge benefits. So that is the one that the organisation uh, that funds and uh, and we, we proudly support it, yes. Joy, thank you so much for sharing your food memories with me today and with all of us today. You make me want to look at my life and make sure that I'm not missing a millisecond and filling it all up. If I've left you with a message, you do that, my boy. Just live for the moment. No, live for the future, but enjoy the day. Thank you, Joy. Okay, darling. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Plated Three Food Memories. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about it, online or in person. You can also subscribe, rate it and write a review. Bye for now.